Well, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, without any fiddling and deviling. They call us the good guys. I don't know why, because we're not really that good. Well, we think we're good, but actually we're just kind of mediocre. Adios, Sean Connery here. I'd like to welcome you all to the Gary Levitt and French podcast. Of course, that's Gary and his brother Keith. By the way, why the hell does Gary get top billing? Keith's much better looking. Good morning again, folks. Gary Levitt and friends on a Sunday morning. It's 1510 WMEX here in Boston. We are known as Boston's good guys, and we've got a really good guy on the phone. How good is he? Well, he's out on the left coast, and he was willing to get up this early in the morning and talk to us. And let's see, what do I want to say about him? He's a legend. He's just a Hall of Famer. He is one of the greatest play-by-play sports announcers of all time. Now, you're going to say, what sport? He has actually done it all. Keith. Yeah, he really has. You, you name the sport, he's done it. And, and if it's a moment, a special moment in a particular sport, well, you know he's going to make it even that much more special. And he's usually there. Or he was there all the time. It's amazing. My whole life, my whole youth, I can basically relate it to Bob. Okay. Without a doubt, he was there at every moment of those major sport sporting events. Ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for the one and only Bob Costas. Yes. <laughs> Did we do you right, Bob, or what? Is this Gary Levin or Michael Buffer? <laughs> he doesn't have that slick back look, though, that Buffer has, though, Bob. But he's all right. He's all right. I can give you Johnny Most at the end of the interview. We'll hold off on that one, okay? I hear that your Johnny Most is legendary. Well, thank you very much, Bob. I heard that your Bob Costas is legendary. <laughs> <laughs> That's tremendous. Bob Costas, this is such a privilege for my brother Keith and myself, two brothers at home, all love Bob Costas. Our kids as well that play sports and have done really well in sports here in New England say Bob Costas is their favorite. Oh, that's awfully nice. No doubt about it. And you got your start as a sportscaster, very, very young of age. In fact, I think you were at Syracuse when you got things going, or was it even before then? No, at Syracuse, um, WAER, which is the campus radio station there, allowed underclassmen to pretty much try anything. So I was 18 years old and a freshman, been there only for about a month uh, when I did my first uh, few bits on air, sports reports, and then later it wasn't until my sophomore year that I did play-by-play of some Syracuse football and Syracuse basketball. And then during my senior year at school, the 73-74 semesters and hockey season, as it turned out, uh, I was lucky enough to get a job as the voice of the Syracuse Blazers of the old Eastern Hockey League, which is the Paul Newman Slapshot League. That's right. There's in the movie Slapshot are guys that I actually knew because they were loosely based on those people. So I was doing those games for 30 bucks a game and $5 a day meal money on the road wow. while I was still a student at Syracuse. So I would literally be studying rosters on the bus on the way from Syracuse to Johnstown let's say, a seven-hour bus ride. We didn't stay at the hotel. We got there, played the game, turned around, came back. Uh, And then on the way back, I could literally be writing a term paper or studying for a final, and we'd pull into the Syracuse War Memorial, which is where the bus would be parked, the home ice, the arena where they played their home games. I'd get off the bus and very likely go to an 8 o'clock class. And that was the way my senior year at Syracuse played out, but it helped to launch my career. 
old old time hockey, Bob? Oh, very much so. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it, it, there was not it was not an official game until you had your third or fourth fight. I was going to say, is that where you got your, your chops as far as, like, announcing fighting? <laughs> well, I didn't do much boxing subsequently. I hosted a few big right. fights for HBO in yep. the early 2000s. Yeah. But I would say that most of my blow-by-blow experience was, in fact, calling hockey fights. That's what I meant, yeah. That's pretty cool. That is really cool. And, you know, not too long after the fact, you end up, and this is my favorite part of your career. I'm sorry I'm partial to this. But as the play-by-play guy for the Spirits of St. Louis, some people call them the St. Louis Spirits of the old ABA, red, white, and blue basketball days in 74 with some teams that, I don't know, if you took those teams that the Spirits had in 74-75, they're as good as any team that was in the NBA at that time. Well, I don't know about as a team, but individual talent, Marvin Barnes, your listeners, at least of a certain age, will remember from his Providence days with yep. Kevin Stakem and Ernie DiGorio mm. and others, and they went to the Final Four uh, one of those seasons. Marvin Barnes was the Rookie of the Year, uh, the first year of the Spirits. They only lasted for two seasons between 74 and 76, and then uh, the ABA essentially folded and four teams were taken in, the Pacers, the Spurs, the Nuggets, and the Nets, and the Spirits were on the outside looking in. But we had Marvin Barnes, who had he not self-destructed, which perhaps was predictable, Mm. undoubtedly would have been a Hall of Fame caliber player. Moses Malone was a rookie the same year that Marvin Barnes was, and Marvin was easily the rookie of the year in the ABA. Wow. We had Maurice Lucas, who went on to great start oh, the in the NBA, yeah, alongside yeah. Bill Walton when the Trailblazers won the title over Dr. J's 76ers first well. year yeah. after the merger. Uh, Moses Malone, after Utah folded, we had Moses Malone for half a season. Don Chaney, the second season, came the over duck. from the Celtics, and he was at the backcourt with Freddie Lewis, who had been the point guard for all three Pacers ABA champions in uh, the 1960s and early 70s. So we had Ron Boone, who was a great player in the ABA. Uh, his career was essentially winding down when he played in the NBA with Kansas City, but we had a lot of really good players. That's a slew of talent you just knew. Yeah, but we never played we never played five hundred. The first That's year unreal. we went thirty and fifty and lost all I think it was eleven regular season games we played head to head with the defending champion Nets. And then we lost the first game of the playoff series against them and then almost unbelievably proceeded to win the next four in a row. Huh. Uh to sweep Doctor J and uh, and the Nets out of the playoffs at that point. And actually it would have been very strange for a team with a record of 30-50 and 50 right. to win the league title. But in the next round, uh, we were down two games to one and leading in game four against Artis Gilmore, Dan Essel, and the Kentucky Colonels, coached by Hubie Brown. And Freddie Lewis, who along with Marvin really was leading the team at that point, twisted his ankle and went out and... They proceeded to lose that game at home, go down 3-1. Then the next night at Freedom Hall in Louisville, they were uh, finished <laughs> off. But they had a chance, actually, to beat both the Nets and the Colonels back-to-back, in which case they would have played the Pacers for the championship. And at that point, they would have had all kinds of momentum going. So to your point, did they have lots of talent? Yeah, they had lots of talent. 
Uh, but except for that one brief run in the playoffs in the spring of 75, they never really put it all together. Now, that, that con- Colonel team that actually beat the Spirits, that went on to win the championship, correct? Yes, yes. They uh, beat the Pacers and George McGinnis um, in, the t- in the title round. Bobby Leonard was the coach of those Pacers teams, as he had been. Uh, for all three of the teams that won the championship. And, of course, that Kentucky Colonel team goes on, and this is the part that I really like, aside from how good they were, to challenge the Golden State Warriors for a, I believe it's a one-game, million-dollar winner-take-all. But, Bob, you go ahead and tell us, because I'm kind of probably a little gray in that area. I'm beyond gray. I'm completely (laughs) Bob, here we go. You're going to have to give Gary Levitt credit. Rick Barry tells Golden State Warrior Management, do not accept the challenge from the Kentucky Colonels because we cannot beat them. There is nothing to win here. We will lose. Yeah, the Warriors the Warriors had won uh the Warriors had won the NBA championship yeah. that year. So I guess it was a one game challenge between the two league champions, yeah. the ABA champs and the NBA champs. And of course Rick Barry had played uh, in the ABA, so he was familiar with the talent. Yeah. Exactly, and that's what it was, and it never happened. And then the following year was the Nets with the Celtics, and, of course, on that one, Red Auerbach says, no, thank you. And Bob Nedelicki recently had told me, Bob, that 70, when the Knicks won the championship with Willis Reed, Walt Frazier, Dave DeBusha, the Pacers, Bob Nedelicki's Pacers actually challenged those Knicks, and the Knicks said, no, thank you. So that's what I know. That's what I'm bringing to the game today. <laughs> that can be interpreted two ways, and I'm a big ABA guy, so I think that the ABA champions or any group of ABA all-stars would have held their own very well right. against the best of the NBA. In fact, before I make my point, I'll circle around to this one. The first year of the merger, the 76-77 season, Half of the players in the NBA Finals, five of the ten starters in the NBA Finals between Portland and the 76ers, had played in the ABA. Dr. J, George McGinnis, and um, and uh, Caldwell Jones of the 76ers, and Dave Twardzik in the backcourt and Maurice Lucas in the frontcourt for the Trailblazers. That's, That's right. Five out of ten. But more than that, ten of the 24 players in the NBA All-Star Game had played in the ABA. So the, the quality of the ABA was underrated, but look at it this way. If you're the 70 Knicks, one of the legendary teams in NBA history, and they've just beaten Wilt Chamberlain, Jerry West, uh, and Elgin Baylor of the Lakers in an epic seven-game final, what do you have to gain you're by right. playing the Indiana Pacers? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. If, you, if, if, if they, you played a best of seven and beat them four straight, so the the upside of that isn't even worth the downside of beating them four games to one in public perception. Yeah. The seventy six the seventy six Celtics, as you guys know well, right. come off the series against the Suns with the incredible triple overtime game, maybe still, all things considered, the greatest game in NBA finals history. <laughs> They're probably exhausted. Doctor J and the Nets have just beaten Denver. Uh, for the final ABA championship, that one might have made a little bit more sense. But as you know, Red was always disdainful of the ABA. Right. And they're the Boston Celtics. Again, what do they have to gain by, by playing Dr. J and the Nets and running the risk even of 
this series being close, even if the Celtics win it, it's a net, no pun intended, it's a net loss for them mm. in public perception. So it doesn't surprise me that all the NBA people that you mentioned took a pass on all those possible matchups. Yeah. And, and Red himself didn't really give Julius Irving a whole lot of credit early on. He said he's all flash, no substance. I remember these quotes very well. And then at the very end of Julius's career, he said the biggest mistake that he ever made, Red saying the mistake that he had made himself, was that he was not able to figure out how good Julius Irving really was. Shouldn't have been that hard to figure out. <laughs> no. I, I know that well. With all due respect to Red, who was a basketball genius, yeah. you know, <laughs> that, that Dr. J was one of the best of all time. Now, how could he miss that one? evident from the start. <clears throat> well, he's still my favorite to this day, and he knows that. We did talk to the doc a few weeks back, and, and he knows that he's my all-time favorite. Yeah. Now, you're announcing days play-by-play for the Spirits of St. Louis. You have an interview, and I remember this interview, and I'd love to pull it up, but you actually interview Marvin Barnes, or I don't know whether it is on video or on audio, but he thinks that an airplane is a time machine. Yeah, it wasn't an interview. It was an exchange uh, at the airport in Louisville. We had played the Colonels, and everyone flew commercially then. So the next morning, we're flying back from Louisville to St. Louis, and it's only about a four, four-and-a-half-hour drive, but Louisville is in the eastern time zone, and St. Louis is in the central time zone. So the trainer, who doubled as the traveling secretary, hands out the itinerary, and it reads, TWA Flight 305, depart Louisville, 8 a.m., arrive St. Louis, 756. <laughs> and Marvin beckons me over, drapes an arm over my shoulder from about a foot above me, looks down, brandishing this sheet of paper, and he says, bro, bro, do you see this? And I said, yes. And he goes, well, I don't know about you, but as for me, I am not getting on any time machine. (laughs) Now, when I first tell that story to people, which I've now told about 5,000 times, but but it's by request. You know, it's the most most frequently uh, pressed button in the Costas jukebox. (laughs) the the little ditty they want to hear so we cue it up and do it again but some people think that this indicates that Marvin was clueless or dumb no quite the opposite for all of his drawbacks most of them kind of tragic because he was a likable guy and he hurt himself more than he hurt anyone else but for all of his drawbacks Marvin was smart and he knew that that was funny he knew he was constructing a very humorous observation. He was not clueless. He knew exactly what he was doing. Oh, that's funny. You know, you, you, you made mention that you, you get all these stories, the uh, old stories, which are great, and people want to play them back. But, I mean, I have two that always jump out at me, and, I, and periodically I'll do this. I actually teach. I'm a history teacher, Bob. And when I have downtime, I love to watch YouTube, and there's one particular video which I constantly pop up at least two times a year, two or three times a year. And it was the time when you eulogized Mickey Mantle. And to this day, I just played that the other day. I was talking to my wife. I go, I want you to watch this eulogy that Paul Costas does for Mickey Mantle. My wife had no idea who Mickey Mantle was. Even though we're a huge baseball family, she did not know Mickey Mantle. But after watching that, I think it was midway through it, she's in tears. I'm I'm over there and I'm I'm trying to you know, clear my throat a few times and to this day that thing still makes me well up 
And I was not a huge Mick fan. I mean, he was Mickey Mantle. I know he meant the world to you. But the way you went, the way you painted that, it was like an artist. It, it captivated me. Uh, thank you. I, I had a feel for the subject, uh, having grown up on Long Island as a Yankee fan in that era of baseball. But one of the most flattering responses that I received in the aftermath of that eulogy was people saying, you know, like you, I was not a Yankee fan. I grew up in Boston. I was a Ted Williams fan or a Carl Yastrzemski fan, or I grew up in Chicago and I rooted for Ernie Banks or Detroit and Al Kaline was my guy or Willie Mays or Hank Aaron was my guy. But I knew exactly what you were talking about. And the particulars of Mickey's life aside, and in some respects he led a star-crossed existence, but part of what I was getting at there was trying to conjure up the feeling that a kid had about baseball in the 50s and 60s, and how, no matter how much we might have loved it in the 1990s, which is when this took place, Mickey died in 1995, you would have had to have grown up following baseball during that era to really grasp what a kid's favorite player meant to him during that period of time. And I guess I got that idea across because, as I just said, I heard from so many people who specifically said, I wasn't a Yankee fan, but I knew exactly what you were talking yeah. about. It, yeah. it, it did. It, and you did exactly what, the way you just described it to a T. It brought me back to being a, uh, a young guy when I loved baseball. I mean, I still love baseball, but not the same as the passion I had as a child. It meant everything to me. And you literally transformed or t- took me back, a 57-year-old, and I was back to being 9 years old, 10 and I had those old feelings in my Oakland A's. It was, it was fantastic. And there's one more, Bob, I, and i got to make mention of this because I, I was watching it again, and I watched it again today. Uh, it was the 98, it's Jordan's final shot with the Chicago Bulls. You call that sequence tremendous. It was a sequence of plays, but it was at the very end, and you guys are about to sign off. And Did you write, I always wanted to know, did you write that ending? Was that scripted, or was that off the top of your head? I had some bullet you know, you come into any game or any series, a final series in the NBA, a World Series, a Super Bowl, with an understanding of what the storylines are. And in this case, the storyline was bigger than the series itself, even as exciting and memorable as the series was on its own merits, because it was about the likely breakup, labeled the last dance, uh, of the Bulls as a team, and the likely end of Michael Jordan's NBA career. His brief return with the Washington Wizards was a footnote after the fact. But the curtain, in essence, came down at that point. So I knew that entering the fifth game, as a matter of fact, in Chicago, since the Bulls were up three games to one, and then entering the sixth and a possible seventh game, had the Jazz won that sixth game, that we'd be kind of wrapping up the Jordan era, whether they won or lost. So I had the general themes in my head. And I had some bullet points, but of course we didn't know what would happen in the game itself. So there was, there was no time to sit sit down and write that kind of postscript. Right. Uh, so, you know, if you're a capable broadcaster, uh, you can move between a script and ad-libbing. You can ad-lib in and around the notes that you bring with you. So what happened that day was a kind of a hybrid of those two things. I always thought that was the most amazing 
announcing. I mean, it was so captivating. And, and you, like you said, it's almost like you you wrote a script for the game and then you had the ending already drawn up. It was like, and I was just watching it again today. And, you know, once again, going back into the past, I'm saying, that's absolutely amazing. There was one more thing I wanted to bring up, which I found kind of neat because I have a son named Keith and my name is Keith. And you have a son named Keith. And I, I was reading about that and then I, I looked at his middle name and I go, huh, there's a Kirby in there. So I wanted to know about Kirby. And I thought this was kind of cool. You had a bet or uh, uh, some type of wager between Kirby Puckett? Yeah, you know, <laughs> Kirby Puckett and I were very friendly. Yeah. Uh, he was early in his career then with the Minnesota Twins. But I was covering baseball on a regular basis, part of the Game of the Week team at NBC for the Saturday afternoon games. And so I'd become friendly with Kirby. And my wife and I are in spring training. Uh, we used to go every spring uh, to Florida. And so I'm having lunch one day with Kirby, and my wife is noticeably pregnant, and he says, hey, uh, have you picked a name for the kid? And I said, no, we don't even know if it's a boy or a girl. We don't want to know until the child is born. And he says, jokingly, well, how about Kirby? It works for a boy or a girl. And like an idiot, I say, tell you what, Kirby, (laughs) if you're hitting 350 when the child is born, we'll name him or her after you. And for those in the audience, whatever dwindling number it may be, who remember old fairy tales, it's kind of like a Rumpelstiltskin thing. Remember, they had to promise to name the kid Rumpelstiltskin for whatever crazy reason. Uh, so it wasn't quite as extreme as that. But I said, like, if you're hitting 350, yeah, we'll name the kid Kirby. Now, at that point, uh, Kirby Puckett was a good young player but hadn't really blossomed. I think the highest he'd ever hit to that point in his short career, he'd been in the majors maybe three years, was 297. So we get into May, uh, child is due, and he's hitting like 372. Wow. Here it comes. So the kid is born, but there's no way, there's no way that Randy's going to go for Kirby. So she she wants to name him Keith after her younger brother. So uh, we thought, well, we'll give him two middle names so that I'm not welching on the bet. So Keith, Michael, Kirby, Costas. You're a man of your word, Bob. You are a man of. I, I think that's awesome. I heard that story. I love that story. I'll take. I'll take Kirby. Yeah, Kirby's not a bad yeah, name. I like, and I always like oh, Kirby I mean, Puckett. Like Kirby, Kirby Puckett. Man. Well, and, and he was Kirby so Kirby. nice. Yeah. Yeah. Keith uh, yeah. became aware of baseball, and by the yeah. time he was three or four years old, he knew uh, a good number of major league players. Grew up in St. Louis as a Cardinal fan, um, and we would. I would bring him around. If I had a Twins game, I'd bring him around. And, and Kirby treated him as almost as if Kirby was his godfather, right. which he might as well have been. You know what I loved about you, Bob, besides the fact you called all the great games, all the major events? You always called it straight. You, you, you pointed out the obvious, but where people were afraid to say it, you know, you weren't. You always you just spoke the truth, and that was on countless occasions. I mean, I can give examples. I know you can, the NFL NFL, of course, with the concussions, uh, Major League Baseball, steroids. It was just one thing after another that you were never afraid to address. The controversial subject. Yeah, he just, he was fantastic. You just came out and you did it. You didn't care. I mean, you cared. I think you cared so so much that people, you wanted people to know what was going on. Well, you're so eloquent the way he did it. He was so informative. I mean, I'm watching sports, but I'm getting informed. Thank you. Here's the thing. I've always felt that 
it's a misunderstanding on the part of some broadcast executives that if you say anything at all negative about the event you're covering, and I didn't so much even negative. I was honest. I wouldn't be there if I didn't enjoy the events. But if you acknowledge some of the issues or some of what's just going on right in front of you, uh, don't insult the intelligence of the audience, acknowledge the elephants in the room, I don't believe that the audience is automatically going to turn away. Everyone knows, for example, that academics and athletics are not exactly perfectly aligned in big-time college sports. Have they stopped watching the Bowl Championship Series? Will they stop watching March Madness? Did we stop caring about baseball because of steroids? Terrible black eye for the game. Corrupted the record books as well as contemporary competition. But we still love baseball. Um, you know, so I, I felt as if you have to level with the audience. And by leveling with the audience, you actually gain greater credibility, in my mind, when you rave about something. When you subsequently say, hey, this is great, I enjoyed it, I loved it, I'm glad you were here to see it with us, uh, following it on television, whatever, when you say that and express enjoyment or appreciation, people are less likely to think you're hyping or playing the shill if you're willing to acknowledge some of the less pleasant realities. I think it gives you you greater, greater credibility. And you've had so many highs and, and some lows. Uh, what I don't get out of your career is that you'd be the guy or the person as far as like doing the sports, your knowledge, your voice. You have this nice, uh, really appealing voice. So I could hear you doing golf more so than the greatest golf announcers of all time, too. Uh, really, you could, you could announce. I think that's, that's wrong because <laughs> a real feel for it. Yeah. I mean, I can do, I could do almost anything I was asked to do competently. Yeah. and professionally, but I never tried to BS the audience as to what the depth of my knowledge or attachment was. I like golf. Yeah. I watched a lot of the Players' Championship uh, this past weekend. Uh, I'm riveted by the Masters, uh, but I don't have the grounding in the sport right. that Jim Nance does, that uh, Dan Hicks has, mm-hmm. that Mike Tirico, for that matter, has. So while I could do a capable job, I could not rise to that level because I just don't bring with me uh, the feel for the history of it uh, and the real attachment to it that I did, for example, with baseball and the NBA. Yeah, you you, you did everything, though. I mean, like I talked about earlier, the fact that you did almost every sport that I, any major event, you seem to be there. And and then you you do primetime TV. I think you took over for Larry King for a bit on CNN. It was like you were just everywhere, and it was always must-watch TV. You, like you felt like, oh, this is going to be a good show. And Bob's it's got, it's got to be a good show. In fact, I th- I was thinking earlier today. I go, if there was a hopscotch match, I think I want Bob to announce that. He'd probably make me interested in watching that. They never asked me to do the equivalent of a hopscotch. Match. <laughs> so yeah, I know the prime of my career yeah. coincides with a certain era in television yeah. before there was so much stuff out there that you almost get buried beneath the tsunami of all of it. Um, there was, if a game was on prime time on NBC, then you could bet that there was a very large audience. And from the mid eighties to the early two thousands, I'm involved in the NBA finals in the nineties. And that's the Michael Jordan era. 
the World Series, either hosting or calling it on NBC at a time when World Series games got much higher ratings than they would in subsequent generations. Right. Uh, the Super Bowl, when, when NBC had it during that era, and then hosting the Olympics. And at the same time, maybe because of that prominence and because uh, they sensed that I had a bit of a sense of humor, then I'd be on with David Letterman or Conan yeah. O'Brien or later Jay Leno or when Cheers and Frazier wrapped up their programs, they did retrospectives. They had me host those things, uh, Saturday Night Live skits. So I think in that sense, people who weren't avid sports fans knew me in a way that a very good announcer today, even doing comparable assignments, is unlikely to be known by a broad audience. Yeah. Even the Olympics... It's not the same as it, as it once was, not just because COVID forced a postponement, although that plays into it. People have just have so many different ways to absorb sports, streaming, or they DVR it. It just doesn't, it seldom feels like the kind of must-see, stop-everything event that it once did. Now, I'd like to think that I did a good job with the various assignments that I had, but you have to recognize that everything is the product of some kind of context. So if I was 30 years old today and starting out, I think I would have a good career. But I don't think that it would have the same sort of resonance that you're talking about because I was just lucky enough to come along at a time when you could kind of command. I didn't command it, but the event right. really commanded national It was attention. like a perfect storm. And people like me and... Al Michaels and Vin Scully yeah. and Jim McKay and Great people like voice. that. We were connected with those events, and so we, we kind of seeped into the consciousness of the viewers. That's so true. That, that's, that's, he, he's <laughs> just he's giving <laughs> me a so story. It's so eloquent. You're a walking history book, Bob. And you're talking. It's in so the funny. announcers that you talk about. I was going to actually ask you, who, who were the guys that preceded you that you might have drawn from? As far as your career, there had to be some that inspired what you've done. Well, one I overlapped because he lasted so long and was so legendary, and that would be Vin Scully. I don't think anyone could ever touch him, all things considered. The combination of longevity and how eloquent he was, the sound of his voice and everything else. So he got Scully in baseball, but I also began my career after Syracuse in St. Louis. So I was around Jack Buck, Jack Buck on yeah. a constant basis, the longtime voice of the Cardinals and Monday Night Football on the radio with Hank Stram. Yeah. Uh, so I never tried to copy anybody, didn't try to copy Vin, didn't try to copy Jack, but you absorb something from them, some element of professionalism. Uh, Jim McKay was someone I always admired, even though I didn't get to know Jim until my own career was established. Uh, I admired the fact that he was literate. There was a combination mm -hmm. of a journalist's eye, but also even as he became an elder statesman, a little bit of a little boy's enthusiasm. And that combination was, was very appealing. Someone like Jack Whitaker was an essayist. And you talk about right. composing an essay off the top of his head. He didn't know his secretary was going to win the, uh, the Belmont, as he did, and, and win the Triple Crown. But then he composed off the top of his head an eloquent essay that summed the thing up. Yeah. Uh, those were the people I admired. 
Yeah. It's, Not exclusively those, but that's an example. No, and, and like I did mention uh, Whitaker. I mean, I always liked him. And just the way you uh, described him, I remember that. And there was a guy that did hockey and recently retired, Doc, and and he had that same panache. Where you're watching the the game, and he'd always had a little bit of more verbiage that just made it even that much more special. I love when he called Blackhawks games. I was a huge Blackhawk fan, by the way. Doc was tremendous, you know. And he did something. When I was in St. Louis, uh, Dan Kelly was the voice of the St. Louis Blues, and he right. was the gold standard then. And he did Stanley Cup games on network television, including uh, the Bobby Orr flying goal yeah, to complete yeah. the sweep of the Blues, I think it was in 1970. So Dan was, you know, at the top of the pyramid. But Doc Emmerich did something with hockey that I have never heard another hockey announcer, and I could rattle off the names of very good hockey announcers, but something which Doc has been able to do, and it seems almost impossible given the frenetic pace of a hockey game, yeah. he's able to work anecdotal material mm-hmm. in while calling this end-to-end action. Yeah. I can't think of anyone else who's ever done that as well as Doc or even attempts it the way Doc did in hockey. Folks, here on 1510 this morning, Gary Levitt and friends, Bob Costas is with us. And Bob, this has been so, so good, but we'd really be remiss if we don't bring up the Dropping Dimes Foundation, the whole ABA thing that has taken place. And rather than me pinpoint any one particular topic there, please take it from now. Go ahead. It's all you. A number of players who performed in the ABA went on to very successful and financially rewarding NBA careers. But there are a hundred some odd surviving ABA players, most of them now in their 70s or 80s, and most of them are doing well, but some of them are doing not so well. They didn't make huge money. They didn't qualify for pensions from the NBA or the ABA, and some of them are down on their luck. And so the Dropping Dimes Foundation, dropping a dime being basketball slang for an assist, the Dropping Dimes Foundation started in Indianapolis some years ago, and it's the basketball equivalent or ABA equivalent of the BAT organization, the baseball assistance team, which helps former players or members of the baseball community in need. And so the Dropping Dimes Foundation has been doing that for quite some time, doing it quietly because they never want to embarrass or compromise the dignity of any of the players, some of them former stars and bold-faced names who now can use financial assistance. But the biggest effort they've made, apart from helping individuals, and they've done a heroic job with that, has been to lobby the NBA over the years and say, look, you're not legally obligated to do this, but here's a relative handful of players who played a part in the history of basketball in building the game. I mean, after all, the ABA winds up enhancing the NBA, not just because of the four teams that were taken in, which are stable and successful franchises, and the star players of that era who were on those teams, but also because of the three-point shot, uh, popularizing a more wide-open style of play, the dunk contest, etc., etc. Isn't there some way that this billion-dollar industry can spare a few million and set up a pension fund that will take care of some of these players who need it and who, in a sense, have earned it. 
And as we speak now, it looks like uh, we're closing in on that, uh, that the NBA is going to come around Excellent. with a wonderful gesture and include uh, the former ABA players, at least those that had three years of service in the ABA, to qualify for a pension, which would mean so much to a lot of these guys. It certainly would. Now, you wrote the book, or you contributed to the book, Loose Balls. Our good friend Bob Nedelicki has a, uh, a book that's called We Changed the Game. Bob, book sales are going towards the Dropping Dimes Foundation. I know you know Scott Totter, and I was told that you might have a brand-new red, white, and blue basketball. I don't know whether that I was supposed to say that or not. <laughs> I, I have it, yes. It has arrived. <laughs> Excellent. I heard it's pretty had, darn good looking. I had a anyway from my ABA days, but now I have a brand new one. You go outside and shoot some jumpers there, Bob. <laughs> if I could find a hoop. <laughs> well, you're welcome to play with us. So we're going to do our 60-second buzzer beater before we let you go, Bob, if you don't mind. Okay. Here we go. Starting with the ABA, who are the top five players of all time from the ABA? But you can only have two guys, two forwards, and a center. Go. You're up, Bob, not me. Julius Irving is one of the forwards. Um, maybe by service, Dan Issel is the other, with honorable mention to George McGinnis and Willie Wise. Artis Gilmore is definitely the center. There weren't as many great centers, so Artis Gilmore is the center. Uh, in the backcourt, wow, in the backcourt, who am I overlooking? Uh, James Silas of the Spurs was great. Always liked him. Jimmy Jones was terrific. So was Freddie Lewis. Um, Steve Snapper Jones was a big star ah, in the Snapper. ABA, and now I've, I've broken the rules. Yeah, you're going all over. You're going to a 10-man deep here, Bob. <laughs> Louis, Louis, Louis Dampier is the all-time leader. you got to have the three-point shooter in there. Louis could pop a three for you. Does yeah. Gervin get in there as one of the guards? No, what about George? Was the Iceman? I should, I should and David him. Thompson. It was D-Team. <laughs> George, George Gervin would be your two-guard. Uh, David Thompson was really a two-guard, not a one, but yeah. Yeah. I guess I guess Thompson and Gervin would have to uh, supplant some of the backcourt guys yes. I mentioned <laughs> with apologies to all of them and their memory. <laughs> okay, okay. So the best five from the ABA back in the day, whoever the five are, they play against the best five of the NBA from back in the day at that time period when they were both going. Who wins that game? Well, the center at that point, Russell and Wilt are gone. So your center at that point is Kareem. Yeah. Uh, and Bill Walton is maybe playing a forward spot. Yeah, he's got to go power. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I'd give the NBA a very slight edge, but the Ooh. ABA would hold its own. If you stick Walton and Elvin Hayes at forward, that's what I'd do. I'd, I'd Kareem, Walton, and, oh, that's a big front three. And Pistol in the backcourt? Uh, yeah, I'm putting Pistol and Clyde in the backcourt. Well, you got, you got Jerry West. Ooh, that's right. I'm taking West, Mr. Clutch out. You got West and Robertson, depending upon what point in the ABA's history you're That's talking true. about. If you're That's talking true. about the tail end, yeah. then then Oscar and Jerry are winding down. But if you're talking about 1969, yeah. you're right. You're you right. Know. All right, I'm I'm bowing down to you, Bob. I'm, I'm going with you on that one. <laughs> but I'm taking the ABA. I like the. ABA. I'm taking the ABA too. <laughs> NBA loses by four. It's sacrilege in, in Celtics. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. I'm done with the Celtics. <laughs> I liked them back in the day. I don't like them much anymore. Uh, okay, so the greatest. Dunker in game and the greatest dunker during the contest. You know, I guess there may have been, if you just looked at it objectively, someone to rival Dr. J. But Dr. J's impact on the whole idea of the dunk, uh, I think, is the greatest. And some of his dunks were just incredible for their time. Yeah. Now, obviously, you know, next generations of players take that and, and build on it. 
Uh, Darnell Hillman was a tremendous dunker yeah. back in the ABA of uh, the Indiana Pacers. But, you know, I think you've you got to declare Doc as, as the champ. Uh, I want to plug Bob Nedelicki on this. On the inside well, of his know, book, you wrote a yeah. nice quote yeah. about the whole ABA and about that book. Do you remember any of what you wrote? How long ago was it? <laughs> <laughs> what, what was your essay in the 10th grade English class, Bob? <laughs> Could you recite that for us right now? <laughs> Without looking at the blackboard. What <laughs> the heck type of question is that? <laughs> Throwing knuckleballs he, at Bob. He just had some. Well, you know, he's what, good. He's, he's good. good. I, I figured he might might remember that. What were one. you thinking when you wrote that essay, Bob? <laughs> what was I thinking? Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how many words does Nettle Licky need, and what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> funny stuff. Funny stuff. You got one more for him? No, Pete? I was just thinking because I remember Doc saying. I'm jumping back to the dunk thing, and and when you asked Doctor J that same question, he says. Sean Kemp, best best in game dunker. Dark is so, I don't know. He's selfless. He 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 he's he's not a braggadocious guy. We're talking Doctor J, obviously. No, yeah, he Doc just, is so classy, classy and so guy. gracious. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, but I think it's some some people are like that by nature, and I think Julius, who I first met when he was only in his mid twenties, and he was yeah. always like that. Right. Uh, but it also makes it easier to be gracious when you don't have to make a case for yourself. Exactly. You know, what he did speaks for itself. Right. Okay. Now we'll leave you with these questions. This is it. I promise we're not going to go longer <laughs> because keep... you've given us more. So let's go through the sports that you have announced, and I want your opinion of the best player of all time during your career. Not so much the guys that or before you, but during your career. Best baseball player in your career. The pre-steroid Barry Bonds. There we go. Go ahead. Keep uh, going. He was an elite-level Hall of Famer even before he roided up. What he did on steroids was not authentic, and the single season and career home run records are not authentic, but I would give Barry Bonds an odd as the best all-round player during the period of time that I covered baseball, and Ken Griffey Jr. would be right there, too. Football. Well, I overlapped Tom Brady. Uh, Peyton Manning was great, great regular season numbers. It's difficult to compare uh, a quarterback to a defensive player or to a wide receiver. You know, was there ever a better wide receiver than Jerry Rice? But I guess you got it. It's an easy, it's a chalk thing. It's an obvious thing. But I don't know who you could put ahead of Brady. Maybe you could put a case for someone or make a case for someone on the same level. But I don't yeah. think you could put anyone ahead of him. He's greatest one. How about a hockey player? Ooh. Well, again, I, I was covering games. Uh, I wasn't that much involved in hockey. But uh, I was around when Wayne Gretzky was playing. Yeah. So, so pretty, pretty tough to top Gretzky. Oh, Boston fans aren't going to like that, Bob. Oh, Bob. Oh. <laughs> it's the thing. You asked me. Bobby Orr's done. No, I know. Yeah, he was done. I know. <laughs> Just done. Got to get I, under your did feathers. I, did I watch Bobby Orr? Yes. I watched Bobby Orr play? Yes. Yeah. I never held a microphone in a game where Bobby no, Orr I, was a participant. Yeah. I'm going with you, too. I did interview him once. Uh, I interviewed him once, if that counts. but. Uh. Maybe, right. maybe can help us get them. All right, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe, maybe. Okay, so we go back to basketball. So who would it be for basketball? Ooh, he's going to go Jordan all the way. You know, first, you have to make distinctions between big men and backcourt players, yeah. centers, and, and even forwards, even power forwards. So, you know, when you're talking about Kareem, when you talk about Shaq, uh, and I did cover the NBA during a period of time when they were playing. If you, if you talk about them, it's a separate category. But if you're talking about non-centers, it's Michael Jordan. There it is. 
Yeah. Okay. And last but not least, the sport of uh, the one that Keith mentioned earlier, hopscotch. Yeah. <laughs> Forget that. <laughs> We're only Legendary. kidding. Legendary. <laughs> Pogo, Pogo McGurk. Uh, there we go, Pogo. Of, uh, yeah, Pogo, Pogo McGurk out of out of Broxton. Um, <laughs> he's going to go. The third most famous athlete after Rocky Marciano uh, and Marvin Hagler. Yeah, we just lost out of Broxton. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we did. We lost the marvelous one. So, Bob, we'd like our listeners to. Can they follow you? Can they see anything that you're up to? Because I know this is. We pre-promoted this interview more so than any interview we've done so far, with the exception of Julia serving Dr. J. This has been the biggie. Well, I don't mind taking the silver to Dr. J's gold. Uh, I don't have anything to promote uh, or there any reason to call attention to myself, but I'm on the Major League Baseball Network yes. very regularly. We've done a series of programs, Tom Verducci and I, yeah. uh, during the past year called The Sounds of Baseball. We've done about 10 of them seeing baseball history through the eyes of the great voices of the game, Jim yeah. Scully, Jack Buck, Harry Carey, Bob Euchre, Joe Garagiola, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's been a joy to do, and we've gotten yeah. tremendous response to it. And I'm also an occasional contributor uh, for CNN, and that's about all that I want to do at this point. You, you know, you've done so many great things. I remember watching on the MLB Network when you did the Field of Dreams, you had Costner and the other actors. How how was that? What did that feel like being in that that, that element? That feel, what? And I know you're such a huge baseball fan, and you're, you're a historian of the game. What, what did it feel like for you being there, and just talking about baseball? Well, it's it's kind of an enchanted place, especially in that circumstance, 25th anniversary. Yeah. Uh, and not only did Kevin come back, but Dwyer Brown, who played his dad, you know, want to have a catch. Dwyer Brown came back. Timothy Busfield, who played his brother-in-law and is a, a great, high-spirited, humorous guy, he came back. Yeah, yeah. And they showed the film on what would have amounted to a giant outdoor movie screen set up in center field uh, in the Field of Dreams. And some 5,000 people came and gathered with their lawn chairs or yeah. their blankets on, on the infield and, and watched it in that setting. And what made the whole program great, which we aired for an hour... It first aired in 2014, uh, but then we aired it more recently for an hour before re-showing the movie itself, was that Kevin believes in it so much. You know, he has such an extensive filmography, yeah. but Field of Dreams is on the short list of the movies he's made that mean the most to him. And he's so articulate and heartfelt in speaking about it right. and about what it means to him and what he thinks it means to audiences that's what really made that program as great as it was. That was fantastic. Did you did you tear up when they had a catch again? <laughs> like I do every time I watch that movie? I don't know about every time because I know what's coming. First, first time, yes. I got a special first guest. Time, yes. We got a special guest here. Long time. He's a writer, former writer. Big time writer. Go ahead. Talk to Bob. Would you please? They will come, Ray. I mean, they will come, Bob. Baseball has been the one constant in time. Oh, they most definitely will come. That's Gary again, Bob. Was that supposed to be James Earl Jones? Yes, that was James Earl Jones. The disembodied voice of the disembodied voice of J.D. Salinger. (laughs) Nice. That wasn't wasn't as close to the bullseye as the Johnny Post. Ah. (laughs) Give him Morgan Freeman before we go. All right. Well, listen to this one. I love this voice. My name is Morgan Freeman. 
That's way better. <laughs> Bob Costas is a good friend of mine. Get busy playing baseball or get busy playing basketball. Goddamn right. <laughs> See who I have I to. I like that one. <laughs> I never know who's showing up in the studio, Bob. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Yeah. Anyway, Bob Costas, you have been great. This has been easily, yes. easily our most fun interview that we have done so far. Wouldn't you say? We've Keith? had a tremendous amount of different individuals across the spectrum, and this has been the most enjoyable for me, without a doubt. Thank entertaining. You. Thank you very much, Bob. I appreciate you're so, it. You're so smart. You just know everything. I'm jealous. I wish I knew more. <laughs> you could take a little quicker, Gary. <laughs> Bob, thank you again for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, you take care, brother. Bye-bye. All right, see ya. Bye-bye. Producer Dave here from pod617.com. A reminder to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts. Wherever you find it, you can always go to pod617.com for the full library of this show in Pod We Trust. Pod 617.